This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 238, brought to you in association with Smart and EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Craig Ramsey, Global Head of Real-Time Payments at ACI Worldwide, to talk about uh, global real-time payments, I guess. ACI are mega and were last on the show way back in LFP 060 in 2016, when Paul Tamala explained all we need to know about matters like PSD2 and open banking. I wonder what happened to them along with an awesome tale of dinner with Ronnie and Nancy Reagan in a Baker Street pub. Anyway, I doubt that Craig can top that tale. However, he obviously has some powerful juju, as in the face of my scepticism or lack of complete enthusiasm about real-term payments that there was much to talk about. After all, when I move money around between my app banks, it seems to happen immediately, so what's the problem? He actually successfully convinced me that indeed it was a fascinating topic, which was quite some achievement. So... Let's see if Craig can hex not just me, but the rest of you as well, teaching us what's what about global real-time payments in 2023. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Craig. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Good morning, Mike, and thanks very much for having me. Do you know what? If you are sceptical about real-time payments, let me give you an, an omen to start. I was thinking about with podcast number 238. Now, not that I'm necessarily a believer in these things, but I did a little bit of research and found that there's this thing called angel numbers, numbers that mean something in the spiritual world. And I couldn't help but notice that 238 is a sign of abundance, prosperity, and success, and that things are always good for you if you stay positive and hopeful. And I think that's very true of real-time payments around the world as well. Ah, amazing. Well, obviously, the, the abundant success and prosperity is at uh, uh, your end. Yes, I didn't know much about those numbers, but I do know that 1111 is a sign that spirit, capital S, is sort of uh, uh, reminding you there's a bigger picture to all, all, all of this. Um, also, the, when the First World War ended as well, I don't know if coincidence. Anyway, I stitched you up like a kipper in, in two ways in the, in the introduction. The second of which, uh, which is uh, probably relatively important to the episode, is um, uh, that you've got some interesting song and dance to do on, on the topic of real-time payments. But the first was that uh, your, your colleague back in the day set uh, an incredibly high hurdle, uh, which I don't think has entirely ever been beaten in uh, almost a decade of the podcast uh, by now, of his dinner with Ronnie and Nancy Reagan in, in Baker Street when they were on their last tour to, to Europe, uh, which for all these people without a perfect memory and people who weren't listening in 2016 for some reason, to get a long story short, Ronnie and Nancy Reagan were on a book tour. They had dinner in Baker Street with a dozen people. Goodness knows why Paul was on it, and he couldn't quite remember how he got invited. And the interesting part of which was that during dinner, the Secret Service people, who of course follow ex-presidents and their wives around forevermore, suddenly started freaking out as they, quotes lost Ronnie and Nancy. <laughs> and they were busy imagining tomorrow's headlines, <laughs> as well as their future career prospects. And apparently, uh, allegedly, but why would Paul make it up, They'd gone upstairs where there was a sort of, a, a, you know, Sherlock Holmesy museum, and they were dressed as the mannequins and hadn't been noticed. So, yes, anyway, so that's somewhat of a high hurdle. It's the high watermark, but uh, you're an ambitious kind of chap, and you, your angels are all sort of standing behind you. And, and if you can't beat that story, you did say that actually 
You've had another claim to fame. Well, yes, I can't. I've certainly been run over by a couple of presidential motorcades in the past. One in one in Washington and, and actually one in Prague, which included helicopter gunships escorting the president to uh, to the airport. So, well, we'll get into your career yeah. later. Presume that that was your time as a student rebel of throwing yourself in the front of president's motorcades. Well, that's a, that's another lifetime. But certainly I've been lucky to travel the world with ACI and with previous companies as well. And one of the things you do see is that you get to meet a lot of different people, a lot of different countries. And I was actually mistaken more than once for a certain Hollywood A-lister. In one particular presentation, I was presenting away and we, I noticed there are some folks at the back of the room that, that were sniggering. Now, that's not unusual for one of my <laughs> presentations, but on this occasion, they kept going. And so we got to a break and, and I said to our support team there, well, you know, what's, what's going on at the back of the room there? Oh, they, they think you look like Russell Crowe, to which I, my, I was so happy to hear that. But then within a second, the person said, oh, but not the gladiator Russell Crowe. It's much more like the beautiful mind sort of run down version of Russell Crowe, which obviously my hopes were dashed. But, uh... Oh, I see. Well, I had suggested Bruce Springsteen um, when we were sort of limbering up before the, the podcast. But then on reflection, that's, an, that's not such an accurate thing for, the, for people who are listening, as all the, the audiences are. And then I was busy trying to wonder who the earliest might be. And I was imagining you sort of a, a kilo or two lighter back in the day. And I did think possibly George Cooney, because you've got the sort of the grey gray beardy. Possibly. If people just uh, look up Google um, and then Russell Crowe, then, then that looks like me. Just go with that, shall we? <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Right. Okay, so in terms of your uh, global career, where did it all start off and uh, what amazing sequence of events have led to you being where you are today? Well, I was very lucky at the beginning of my career in the 80s to actually be offered an apprenticeship at Lloyds Bank in London. Funny enough, they called them librarians at the time. <laughs> my official first job was as a librarian, but it led to programmer training and I was very lucky to be trained in PL1, COBOL and TAL by Lloyds Bank. So I became uh, very uh, fluent for tandem computers as it was then, not nonstop, uh, as it's been called, uh, HP nonstop. That was also actually where I first came across ACI, who were one of the suppliers to Lloyds Bank, and actually we still are. But there was a series of firsts going on in the late 80s and early 90s, where you know there was the first electronic cash management systems, the first debit card, the first POS systems for credit cards. ATMs were, were really in their heyday and uh, growing. So it was fascinating to see all of those things starting really at the beginning of my career as well. I then moved on to a company called National Data Corporation. And actually, they were the original parent company that formed a company now known as Global Payment Systems, a much, much bigger company. Again, I was there to support some of their cash management and their, their POS activities. This is even before Y2K, so there was certainly a lot going on in the 80s and 90s, and actually I joined ACI in 2000, so I've been there now 23 years, and I've headed up European Solutions Consulting for account-to-account -account payments, so that includes not just real-time, but also uh, ACH payments, RTGS, real-time gross settlement, or wire payments as Americans call them, and indeed cross-border payments now. Did that for a few years uh, into product management and business analysis and really the world started to change from 2005 when the UK started to look at its faster payments initiative 
that finally went live in 2008 and that was really the precursor for so many countries modern real-time payment systems if we fast forward 15 years from there we're now we see real-time payments as a dominant force across payments around the world more than 70 countries have adopted real-time payments on the back of what we in the UK did back in the the, uh, the noughties. Oh, interesting. So you've actually lived through the history and um, you're one of these people who's actually uh, done this thing called specialisation in that you've been playing one way or another with computers for many decades now and equally in the um, payment sub-silo of finance as a whole. And... Uh, Yes, occasionally I, I wonder what it would be like to specialise. I assume that one might actually end up knowing something about it as opposed to sort of gather around as, as I've done between this, that and the other. So that leads quite nicely already you started into the background to real-time global payments in 2023 and starting off with keeping it simple. In my amazingly insightful introduction, I did of course refer to the fact that I could transfer money between my apps and it's no problem but that is actually just in one country there are other countries and I'm not sure this one is even a, a country anymore so fairly soon will be crossed off the list so the global picture is much more complex but just going back right to the early days when you and I started in the city a few decades ago the fastest payments would take a number of days and I believe this is something uh, equine in origin when a technology <laughs> was right. uh, on four legs rather than um, computers. Yes, indeed. And and one of the reasons that the UK wanted to introduce faster payments, as I say, it went live in 2008, was a means to move money faster. Now, there was always a way to move money quickly, and that's what we call the RTGS, the real-time gross settlement. We call it CHAPS in the UK. That's the name of the system in the UK, and every country calls there something different. But CHAPS was fine for large value payments, but it was also recognised as being fairly expensive for the average consumer to be able to move money quickly. There was also rumours that Gordon Brown, as the then Chancellor back in the noughties, was keen to find a way of moving emergency social security payments quicker and cheaper than through the RTGS CHAPS system. And also CHAPS was only available during business hours. So there was a lot of reasons why we needed a different way of moving money quickly. Now, there are other payment systems. There are ACH, we call that BACS in the UK. That has a three-day settlement cycle in the UK. And the equine reference that you referred to was the reason it was a three-day settlement cycle when it was first introduced was that was the time it took you to ride your horse from anywhere in the UK to take the clearing document into central London. Hardly a, uh, a reason for why something should take three days. Nonetheless, the cycle has remained. Oh, interesting. It rather makes me wonder what the uh, equivalent semi-antique systems were in the likes of Russia or America. I mean, I suspect that in the 80s, China didn't really uh, worry about that thing uh, too much. That other things going on. But yes, uh, it'd take quite a while to gallop across either America or, or Russia. Maybe they had the idea not to base it on horses. Well, they used planes in the States, but there, was, there were a series of private jets operated by the Federal Reserve in the US that were just responsible for flying huge number of paper checks 
across the Federal Reserve banks in order for them to get into the local branch to be checked. It was, when we look at it today, uh, hugely inefficient. And, you know, 20 years or so ago, they introduced something called Check 21 to remove that need to actually have the paper document uh, get back to the originating branch. And I assume a century ago, plus or minus, they would have used the railroads and then moved all their checks around like that. Mm. Now, railroads, I'm glad you mentioned the railroad reference. And actually, that's that's really a, a key uh, analogy for real-time payments today. Lots of countries have established real-time payment rails. We actually call them rails in the industry. And it's similar to the railroad construction. If you can imagine people built rails so that you can transact from A to B, you can move from A to B. But it's not unless you have the the freight cars, the passenger services, the stations, the coffee shops, all of those value-added services on top of the rails, do you actually have a, a solution that anyone can actually use? And that's very akin to what we see around real-time around the world anyway, where people have established these rails, typically in-country, and then the industry, the, the fintech industry, the banking, the everyone around the ecosystem of payments then adds value on top of those rails to enable you to use it in the first place. Right. Okay. So we'll get into the sort of geography and connecting the whole world and then the more recent trend over the last 12 months of disconnecting the whole world or creating two sets of railways, perhaps on different gauges, sticking with the railway uh, metaphor in terms of um, BRICS payments and uh, uh, all the sort of Russian Chinese equity cards uh, that are using different uh, things for the geopolitical reasons we all know. But just fast forwarding from uh, before the uh, great financial crisis of, uh, of 08, when faster payment systems were being put together, and um, let's just start with just the UK and then expand uh, beyond there. So fast forwarding to 2023, I must say that I'm a little bit confused because if I transfer money, let's say, from I didn't know, my Revolut to my Monzo, it goes ping immediately. The notifications appear at the same time, which is, which is quite quick. Um, but if one uses a sort of an old school bank, I wouldn't mention one in case they're one of your clients, Bank X, let's say, that's been around for a long time in this country, it might take actually many hours before my phone goes ping if I'm trying to send it. So there seem to be, uh, even in 2023, when everybody's heard of technology and the internet and apps and stuff like that. Every, every mega bank here has got an app, of course. There still seem to be differential speeds, even if it doesn't take horses and days, for me to send money to myself, let alone to, to anybody else. So what's that about then? Plus, we've got, the, we've got the question of Saturdays and Sundays. So let's just start with where we are in 2023 in the UK, in the simple case of Mike sends money to himself between bank accounts. So you can't get simpler than that. Yeah. So a real-time payment in the UK is known as a faster payment. Uh, in Europe, it's known as an instant payment, and it's quite often referred to elsewhere as an immediate payment. So there's actually four terms that all mean the same thing. But let's stick to real-time payment for simplicity. And that has a very clear definition of the service that you're offering to your customer, whether they're a consumer, a merchant, or a corporation. And it enables the sender of the payment, the you, for example, to send money instantly to a beneficiary, to me. We could sit here right now and I could encourage you to send me some money 
and it will show up in my bank account for me to reuse instantly. Now, instantly is obviously a, a bit of a, a term based on an SLA. So most of the time, it's within two or three seconds that the money will have arrived, i.e. quick enough that you wouldn't really notice. And you should be able to stand at your ATM or stand with your debit card or stand however you're standing in order to reuse that money or I'll reuse that money that you have just sent to me. And that's how we use faster payments in the UK real-time payments. But there are other payment services around. We have the CHAP system that I've already mentioned. That's the real-time gross settlement. That's available for uh, business hours only, and it's slightly broader than business hours, but you're absolutely right. It's not available Saturday or Sunday. So why would I use that in the first place? Well, it also comes down to limits. So you can only move up to a million pounds at the moment in faster payments, uh, which obviously wouldn't be enough to, to pay me to, to do this podcast from you, Mike. But uh, assuming that you wanted to send more than a million pounds right now, you'd need to use the CHAP system. There are others. Um, there's ACH, the back system. That's the three-day settlement cycle. It's as cheap as chips to use. Um, but it does take longer to move the money. And it's really, that's what's what's makes the service level. How quickly do you want to move the amount of money you want to move determines which payment service you would actually employ from the bank. And most banks are making that largely transparent to the end user. Yes, okay, so that's clear. Although, going back to comms in general and computers, it's always something which is best understood as a whole bunch of layers because all that's really happening is that electrons are jiggling around. And if you're a physicist, you could look at the electrons that are jiggling around on the screen and then that's the bottom level. And then the higher level is there's I, I as a human being see a pattern of pixels and I think, oh, that's Craig. And they've got a whole bunch of levels in between. And the same will apply to the, the payments. So as you say, there are these rails or these railways, shall we say, connecting all the UK banks and they can use different ones for different purposes. But on top of that, there is, um, I assume, because without revealing secrets, I don't often send myself more than a million between bank accounts. There is, assume, the business question of how efficient an organisation X, should we say, is to actually move money. Let's just take uh, an example. One thing that always pisses me off is I use online platform to manage my um, ISAs or, or whatever they are, tax-free investments. I send money to my online platform using my mobile telephone, which will send it immediately to another mobile telephone app on my own phone. And, quotes, funnily enough, it doesn't actually appear into the other account, sometimes for 48 hours. And no matter how much I've given them a kicking and complained and this kind of stuff, it's, oh, yes, sorry, I haven't got, you know, it hasn't arrived yet. And uh, that money is definitely somewhere in the meantime. So on top of the technical stuff you're laying out, there's obviously a whole bunch of business decisions and I don't know what, what, what actually happens in that. But should we just say that, as you're explaining... The technology of uh, faster payments, real-time immediate payments in the UK goes at the speed of light and so it only takes two or three seconds. But actually some businesses, for whatever reasons, historic or otherwise, or profit or whatever, may choose to operate various elements in that chain, more at the speed of sound, shall we say. And of course, the money doesn't disappear anyway. And there's this old story, which I'm sure most people have heard about, which is a very good one, which is that there never used to be this thing called overnight interest. Uh, until some chap at the Bank of England said, look, I tell you what, don't pay me and I'll just have the overnight, uh, I'll, take, I'll borrow your Bank of England's money overnight. 
at which point they came up with overnight interest. So yes, yeah, so there are, there are complex layers of, of businessy stuff, which has nothing to do with technology, at the top uh, rather than the bottom, because otherwise, how on earth could it possibly take whatever two days for 20 grand to go from one account in my name to a different account via an intermediary? And you're absolutely right. It doesn't take two days. It could happen within those couple of seconds that I mentioned previously. It just depends on whether all of the actors are set up to do that instant payment. So the first decision is if you're using your debit card to fund the account, then that acquisition of the payment is actually going via the payment card rails. It's not an instant payment. For it to be an instant payment, it needs to come direct from your bank account. That's why we sometimes refer to it as an account to account payment. So it must come from your bank account not from your debit card. That will then arrive at the at the bank as uh, as cleared funds. And obviously, if it's coming via the card rails, then you've already introduced perhaps a day of delay to get the money moving. Then the bank will need to decide how they're sending the money on to, the, uh, to your ISA company. Again, are they going to actively promote it via an instant payment or are they sending it via some larger CHAPS instruction that's maybe netting out various payments, or are they sending it by the ACH? Again, if the will is to send it instantly, they absolutely have the means. Once it finally arrives at your ISA provider, are they crediting your account instantly, or are they hanging on to it from a float perspective that I couldn't possibly comment on? I have no idea what their business practices are. What's clear is that on, on my platforms and on everyone else's, I don't end up with an individual bank account. I've got my, let's say, portfolio account with them. And if you send them money, you send it to you know, their bank account for Mike Ballerman. And then there's an allocation process and all that. But anyway, let's not get bogged down in, in the challenges for, for the UK. I mean, it's frustrating from a consumer perspective. I mean, if for somebody like you, then you know all, all of what's going on. But from a consumer's perspective, best practice is that it can be sort of instant uh, at the moment. If it's slow, it's for, it's for other reasons and it's for other organisations either to get their act together and do it faster uh, or not as the case may be. It just tends to be still, even though, and one reason I'm explaining all this is that you, you experience these things as well and, and, and I'm, we both used chaps in the past which used to be used for mortgages and as you, you know, big things like that back, back in the day if you're sending lots of money. But it's just that I didn't want to leave uh, the audience, uh, over half of whom are outside the UK, with the idea that the UK is absolutely amazingly efficient and everything does actually happen immediately. It certainly can happen immediately uh, where there's a will, uh, 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 there's a way. So moving on from, from that, so best practice in, in the UK is, is pretty instant, uh, certainly uh, below a mil. Leon, then how do you want to expand with the geographies? Maybe we just keep it simple and then talk about Europe and then the US before we spin on to the rest of the world and then the complexities. So I've, I've got money and I send it to a buddy in, I was about to say Switzerland, that's not in the EU, I don't know, nor are we actually in, in theory, although we've still got all the same rules. I send to a buddy in, let's say, continental Europe, money. So we should start with domestic real-time payments versus cross-border real-time payments. So within the EU, they have what we call a faster payment in the UK, they call it a SEPA instant. And it's uh, exactly the same result as a two to three second payment. It's uh, various use cases. It's account to account. It's all of the things that we're used to seeing for a UK faster payment. In America, they call it an instant payment. They've just launched their FedNow scheme. And we see that across 70 different countries or so that have all launched their own real-time payments equivalent in the last 15 years or so. 
so that gives us a, a very good domestic footprint for real-time payments. What it hasn't yet done is to hook up cross-border instant payments. And I think that's one of the future things that we're going to see over the next couple of years, a big drive to join some of these domestic real-time schemes for international corridors. It will create new payment corridors between countries that have obviously got some large corridor activity already for trade. That will be more of a business-to-business -business type uh, transaction rather than a consumer-to-consumer -consumer transaction that we see uh, many of the current domestic real-time payments used for. Right, so we've got this, just sticking with a simple metaphor, we've got this, quote, speed of light, uh, instant-ish payments within, as you say, 70 countries, um, but then inter-country, you've you put your money on a boat or you, you're sending your money at the speed of sound, and that's the that's the slowest element. And just to give the audience some feel for the spectrum, if you took the best connected country to, let's say, the UK, out of that list of 70, and the worst connected country out of that list of 70, and I'm sending a buddy, let's say, 100 quid in, in the best connected and the worst connected, what's the kind of range of times uh, it might take for them to actually see my £100 turn up on their phone? There's a lot of history here as well, but let's go with where we are today. It should be possible to move money internationally with the current non-connected instant payment rails within 30 minutes. That's entirely possible. There's been recent innovations from SWIFT. SWIFT are a bank conglomerate that run the international banking networks. Essentially, they're essentially a messaging organization moving instructions on how to move payments around the world. And they introduced something called GPI. Global Payments Initiative, which sped up the ability to move money internationally considerably, massively. I used to joke before GPI, it was actually faster for you to go to your local branch, get a bag full of cash, drive to the airport, get on a plane, fly anywhere in the world, and yes, I include Australia and New Zealand in that list, and deliver the money personally than what the international banking networks were allowing to happen. We've moved on. GPI sped things up massively. It also made the payments a lot more transparent in terms of understanding where they were in the payments chain. It was almost impossible to track and trace your payment. And in a you know modern world that we live in, I can track an Amazon parcel to the nearest millimeter on the planet. But if I was sending a million pounds abroad, I'd have no idea where it was, which doesn't feel right in the current technology and innovation world that we live in. That's changed. Now GPI has sped things up. It still takes, um, most payments are done within 30 minutes. Why are they not instantly? Because you use a series of correspondent banking networks to move the payment around. Don't forget, when money moves to Australia, it never actually goes to Australia. It simply goes to a bank account of an Australian bank in the UK. And it's all about correspondent uh, banking activity at that point. Well, with high value payments, such as the million pounds that we keep talking about, typically customers expect a little bit more risk uh, profile on those payments. So we're doing a lot more checking for sanction screening. We're doing a lot more risk checking. And indeed, if there's something wrong in, in that international addressing of the payment, 
you introduce exceptions handling and repair of the payments as well to make sure it actually gets to the final destination. So it's not quite as simple as just sending a payment and magically it appears. Yes, that's the experience you want from a consumer payment. But once you get into the much higher business to business payments, your expectations around the service level you get from your financial institution are much, much higher. Yes, and the regulatory pressures are much, much higher in terms of checking it. You know, exactly. if you send a billion bucks, you yeah. need to look at that a bit more carefully. So, yes, I can see that the whole global payments landscape is very complex because of the sake of argument around numbers, you've got 200 countries possibly sending to 200 countries. So that's sort of 200 squared already. You've got size of payments, you've got C to C, you've got B to C and you've got B to B. So there really is a very um, complex landscape out there. And you also earlier referenced the fact that you've got payments rails, um, but then you've also got the card rails. And I don't know how they quite do the sort of uh, payments rails behind them. But I was thinking that for the sake of argument, let's say there are 130 countries that don't have domestic real-time payments at the moment. But if I bought something from, don't know, pick a random country, Yemen, uh, I doubt they've had enough time recently to focus on real-time payments. If I bought something from a Ye Yemeni web store, then there's no reason that that transaction wouldn't be, quotes, pretty immediate. If I put my credit card details in, I don't know, I buy Yemeni uh, costume. And I guess the answer there would be that it's not an instant payment the money doesn't actually make it to Yemen. It'd be to their, you know, I don't know, Barclays account in, in London or something like that, they, they, that such a payment would work. So how is it that you can get around the apparent slowness of payments by buying stuff off the internet using your credit card to countries that don't have domestic immediate payments, if I'm making any sense? I'm probably not, but you can sort of answer a different question if you like. No, it's, it's a very valid point. And in some countries, when the card rails are used, it doesn't mean that the merchant gets their money instantly. So your user card, the transaction will be cleared instantly, meaning that both parties are committed to the transaction happening, but the money itself only moves when it comes to settlement, the actual settlement of the transaction. And in, the, in Europe, in the UK, in, in the US, it's pretty quick, that settlement process. However, if in some countries we see settlement at the end of the week or even at the end of the month, in Brazil it's not uncommon for a merchant to only get their money at the end of the month. And that's great if it's the 29th of the month, but if it's the first of the month, they could wait weeks to actually get their settlement. Um, so they're not being paid. And that's one of the benefits of a real-time instant payment is that the merchant can get their money instantly. And therefore, it's no surprise when we go back to that Brazil example, they launched their new real-time payment system a couple of years ago called PIX, P-I-X, and hundreds of thousands have adopted it. Millions of consumers and merchants and corporations have all adopted it to speed up the, the payment cycle and to make money move faster. Who doesn't want to be paid faster at the end of the day? No, exactly. Okay, so in the case of a Brazilian website or a Yemeni website, what is actually happening is not that the recipient business gets paid by Mike immediately. Uh, what is happening is that recipient business, who will ship whatever it is to me, let's say I'm buying a download, buying downloadable MP3 music, so it gets shipped to you immediately or something like that, something digital, some digital product. What's actually happening is from the perspective of the merchant is that they are shifting a credit risk on Mike Ballum and who the hell is he anyway, never heard of him, we're in Brazil. 
to a credit risk on MasterCard. Oh, right, well, actually, we trust MasterCard and, and we'll sort out getting the money from them at a later point. So whilst it appears like it's an immediate payment, it's only a transfer of credit risk from me to MasterCard. Yeah, and there's two important things there. Firstly, the merchant's liquidity. They're not being paid very quickly. Can they afford to run you a credit line? Is it essentially what they're doing? Many can't. And when we look at places like India, which have adopted uh, their, their instant payment scheme, has an overlay service called UPI, and it's generating billions of transactions every month. But you go to India and just walk down the street and you'll see a food cart selling fruit or whatever they're selling. And sure enough, there's a QR code for them to receive their money through UPI. They don't want cash and they certainly don't want a credit card. They want to receive their money instantly because that's what keeps them liquid. So that's that's one of the first things that happening is that liquidity management for the merchant. The second thing that's happening there is the irrevocability of the payment. You get your MP3 download, you decide that you didn't want it in the end, and you can make an exception claim to your credit card company to get your money back. Well, again, that's now fallen on the merchant. And if it's a legitimate reason for refund, fair enough. But if it's not, and there are plenty of illegitimate refund requests out there, then the merchant is now bearing that responsibility as well. One of the benefits of an, or a real-time payment is it's irrevocable. So yes, you still need quality customer service around it to ensure that they can get legitimate refunds, but it also removes that that fraudulent element of refunds that happens across cards. Yes, and as always, payments are complex. Okay, so moving on from that, now we've got uh, a bit of an understanding of a, a, a map of the globe uh, and how it's going. If you were just to summarise some of the the key challenges and the key opportunities that exist in 2023 for global real-time payments, given that that's the, the day job, you've presumably thought about it once or twice. <laughs> as listeners can always hear, and those people who aren't in payments, you can dive into payments as much as you like. It's like fractal complexity. You can zoom in and zoom in and, and, and zoom in, which is why people spend their lifetime doing it. Um, but just more from the sort of businessy, high-levelly perspective, what would you say in late 2023 are things that look interesting, things that are being worked on or things that need to be done? Well, within all of these real-time payment systems, and this isn't just true of the UK, it's true of every country in the world. Once you've got the rails, and by the way, the UK needs an upgrade on its rails, they're out of date, they're ISO 8583, which is a, actually a card-based standard for the data transfer of the payment. So those are out of date, and we're looking to actually now upgrade the UK system to something called NPA, New Payments Architecture. And a few of your listeners will start banging their heads against the wall because I'm going to mention the ISO 20022 uh, data standard, which has been a real challenge for banks over the last couple of years. Not only are modern real-time networks based on that data standard, but we've also seen a shift of all cross-border payments and RTGS payments also moving to ISO 20022. So there's been a huge investment within the banking community to prepare their systems for this much richer, uh, more transparent data standard for moving payments around electronically, those bits and bytes that we spoke about. But that also brings opportunity because now that we're seeing consolidation almost of a data standard for payments, we're also able to leverage use cases from around the world 
that have been successful, whether it's a, a request to pay or QR code payments or earned wage access or any of these other use cases that have been successful and we now want to bring them to the UK or the US or Europe where they can be successful as well. The BRIC communities, the BRIC countries out there, they're way ahead of us on terms of instant payments than what we see in the UK right now. The adoption level, the use cases, the overlay services are way ahead of where the UK is. And that's what we've got to see change in the UK and Europe and the US, those huge economies that are quite frankly behind the times when it comes to real-time payments. It's outside of those countries we look for innovation. Yes, about two or three episodes ago, we had Alipay on the show who were giving us an understanding of uh, fintech in, in China. And I mentioned, we mentioned the 80s when we started in the city. I think in the 80s, there would have been no doubt that uh, China was way behind the quotes West um, in terms of payments and finances and all that kind of thing. But it has shot ahead in the meantime. And it's one of the interesting things about globalization um, there are many disadvantages, of course, but one of the interesting things is that uh, where we are at the moment, for a whole bunch of reasons, as you say, you get to pick from this quote 200 countries around the world. Oh, wow, country, country 173 is doing this. And hey, that's really cool. Um, and best practice can flow, or at least the ideas of best practice can flow uh, around the world uh, ever more rapidly, um, although they do have to be implemented, which is always a challenge, but it keeps people employed. So you mentioned BRICS. We've talked about multipolarity and de-dollarization and all this kind of stuff on the podcast before, so we don't need to dive into the big picture here, which is that simply a bunch of countries don't want all their money throwing through America after the seizing of um, the Russian Central Bank reserves and uh, oligarchs' yachts and, and, and all this kind of stuff. But this goes back quite a long time, and I remember Standard Chartered Bank uh, running into problems and losing a CEO over sort of challenges with what the Americans thought about standard chartered uh, business with um, Iran. So there's lots of me mega politics behind it. But zooming to the absolute opposite uh, level, just in terms of the rails and payments behind um, businesses, in terms of uh, a global real-time pay real payment network, is there uh, any implication at that kind of architectural level, at all these ISO global standards have been agreed in the same way that HTTP has been agreed as a global standard to make web pages for it, for example, is that affected at all by this multipolarity, as it's called, or actually it should be called dipolarity? I saw a chart the other day of um, the list of countries that wanted to join BRICS, and there's a hell of a lot of them. <laughs> Roughly speaking, it was about, I don't know, two-thirds, three-quarters of the world, and then you've got the sort of the former uh, West looking more like 25%, just as sort of a, uh, as a tweet past my eyes. Um, but putting this politics entirely to one side, uh, at an architectural level, at a global payments level, at a protocol level that's everyone signing up, do you think that... If we're in a future where in five years' time there's more multipolarity, there's a bit of a divide between two blocks, you're going to end up with two blocks with sort of slightly different approaches or protocols or, or whatever, uh, which have to somehow communicate with each other, or, or really at this lower architectural level, uh, is this just not affected at all? No, I shouldn't be too worried about the data standard, even if other countries don't use the, the recognised ISO 2022 data standard, there's always a way to, to translate to and from that data standard. It's about the key elements of the data that's most important name, address, and enough qualification so you can run your risk profiles against the, the sender or indeed the receiver of the payment to ensure that the payment is maintaining the political will of the country. 
it's not a technical issue to connect any country in the world and to send instructions on how to move payment. But we still need to move the actual money at some point, and that may require central banks to, to collaborate. Uh, the use of blockchain is a potential future path for that collaboration of central banks uh, in order to move money internationally. And that's really what we'll see as a driving force in the future is, is the political will to connect payment systems together and create those payment corridors rather than any technical inhibition. Yes, so whatever the future is, it is facilitated by chaps like you doing a good job, chapesses like you two, doing a good job of making sure that um, money can flow. And I would assume that at a technical level, at a protocol level, at a practical technology level, that multipolarity is probably increasing uh, the desire uh, for people's products because India and China suddenly want to trade all in yuan and, and they need money to flow you know, conveniently between sort of Delhi and, and, and Beijing rather than to their correspondent bank in New York, uh, you know, pricing in dollars and all that kind of thing. So payments won't go out of fashion, um, although uh, we will have to see how it looks in five years' time in five years' time. One of the great things about payments, Mike, is that you'll always need to transact something and quite frankly, whether it's fiat currency like sterling or euro or you digitize bananas, there's always the need to transfer value. Payments will never go out of fashion. And there's always innovation to look forward to. Yes, yes. And if you're, if you're a sort of a prepper of whom there are quite a lot in America, you've got your store of sort of silver coins in the basement and, and your shotgun and two years supply of food uh, for when things get even worse than they are at the moment. And then the payments will have gone back to where they started, which is passing silver coins from palm to palm. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there and my brand partners the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Craig, you've given us a very clear overview of what's happening. You were talking about starting your, your life decades ago, coboling in the city, and COBOL uh, was uh, quite in demand at the time, and there was always more to be done, even if you have to learn new languages along the way. A lot is happening in payments now, as you've laid it out, uh, a lot more work to come to be done. So uh, anybody who's thinking of joining the payments world, I don't think, uh, as you were just saying, I don't think that they're going to be out of work anytime soon. Zooming in to the more specific level of ACI uh, and what ACI is up to, uh, you've been very kind uh, and given us a little overview of the actual topic um, without mentioning ACI very much. So would you like to tell all the listeners out there who are spread around the world what kind of products and services you you're in particular would wave the flag for right now um, and what kind of listeners who, in banks around the world and all sorts of fintechs and that kind of stuff, uh, what type of listeners should be checking uh, you and ACI out toot sweet? Well, if we're doing our job properly, we're ACI Worldwide are the company you probably haven't heard of. However, I suggest that almost everyone has used our services. We process uh, around about a billion payments a day across our customer base. And we are a payment solution provider to banks and financial institutions, whether they be commercial banks or central banks. We provide solutions to merchants and we provide solutions to billers. Uh, you can't walk down some high streets, the UK is a great example, 
uh, and use and do a payment, use your credit card or debit card without uh, using an ACI service. You can't use an ATM without probably using an ACI service. So that's our issuing and acquiring business. I work in the account to account space where every day we process value of payments in the trillions of US dollars. It's huge value that's passing through ACI system. So we're, we're in the background. We provide the payment solution that moves the payment around the bank, gets it authorized, does the risk profile. We've introduced fraud management services that have got that wonderful term that everyone wants to use at the moment, AI, but it truly is a learning model. It looks at past data and the current data to risk score a transaction to determine whether it looks fraudulent. Because of course, most payments themselves don't have a flag in them that says, I'm a fraudulent payment. They actually look perfectly normal. But it's about the AI and the risk profile that we can apply to it to whether we see that the circumstance of the payment is worthy to flag. So we're moving those, those, mil those billion of payments uh, every day. To the merchants, we're providing payment solutions. To the billers, we're helping them transact with their consumers to actually be paid. And then in the banking space, we're doing the account-to-account -account payments that I'm so fond of and uh, in charge of at ACI. In Europe and the UK, we're looking forward to the new regulations that are coming. So there's new a new replacement to faster payments, the MPA. Uh, we've launched the ACI Real-Time Payments Cloud to enable banks and fintechs to get on board to that NPA solution rapidly as they need to for next year. And then in Europe, there's similar legislation that will actually mandate every financial institution in Europe uh, needs to be offering instant payments to their customers. And again, we, we're able to offer those financial institutions an easy path to adopting and supporting real-time payments. And all of those things, all of those real-time payment benefits of liquidity and irrevocability actually lead to an improved customer satisfaction level. You spoke earlier about moving a payment and actually not very pleased that it takes a couple of days to get to its final destination. Your satisfaction will be vastly improved if you're able to move that quicker. If you're on the end of an insurance claim and you agree a settlement with the insurance and you receive your money instantly, particularly if a tree has just fallen through your house, enables you to get better customer satisfaction. And that's what ACI is, is really about. It's about enabling banks, merchants, corporations to use real-time payments, but actually to get the very best out of them as well. Excellent. Well, it strikes me that payments is one of those very rare areas of finance, which is sort of a win-win-win. I mean, everybody benefits from uh, faster payments, although a few people uh, who are sitting on the money in the meantime don't, but then they uh, oughtn't to be in the first place. And it's a rare example of where actually regulation, which as a previous guest said recently, uh, tends to be opposed to innovation, has actually promoted innovation, um, requiring banks to do things faster and uh, technology companies to get the electrons moving ever quicker. So I thank you very much for that, Craig, on my behalf uh, and that of the listeners. And I wish you and ACI every continuing success in the future. Thank you very much for having me, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via 
clarity.fm slash Mike Ballyman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Watch the fire light dance with me, 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 watch the fire light dance with me,